Curiosity is not a sin, Harry, but you should exercise caution. He's a time strand. You're fraternizing with the enemy. There's the, um, the Cruciatus curse. We'll celebrate a boy who was kind and honest and brave and true right to the very end. Hey everyone, welcome to Hogwarts, a podcast. Hey everyone, we're back with another episode of Hogwarts, a podcast. We're doing Chapter 9, The Dark Mark, and Jen is back with us. Hello. Um, After a very lively chapter and episode on the Quidditch World Cup, we now enter kind of the aftermath. We get this kind of happy moment of the twins winning big, and everybody's kind of starting to come down a little bit of that Quidditch World Cup high craziness. Um, then we get even more nefarious craziness as Harry is awoken with a start by Arthur and told to get everything together. We're, we have to leave. We have to move. Uh, Arthur and the three oldest, Percy, Charlie, and Bill, go off uh, to find out what the, the commotion all is and help help it. And the kids are just like, get, get out of here. Get as far away as you can. Okay, so... We know that there are a group of quote-unquote bad wizards who are floating bodies into the air and marching through the campgrounds. Not great. Fire, some green light going everywhere. Some It's a scary situation. People are screaming. People are running. They don't know what's going on. Uh, Ron has a really apt quote when he sees what's happening and sees the bodies. Because they're not only just floating there. They're being magically contorted to jerk in grotesque ways. Well, and it's not just random people. It's a family. There are two kids. That is correct. Uh, We find out that it's Mr. Roberts, who is the campground manager, and his family. And they don't say kids. They just say two smaller bodies, which would lead you to think, children. Um, And Ron's quote, I think, really captures it perfectly. You know, you don't have to say a whole lot. All you got to say is, that is really sick. Yep. It's really sick. Yeah. So, uh, and I always felt, at this point, I always felt empowered. Like, heck yeah, Weasleys. Like, you have Arthur, Percy, Bill, and Charlie, like, rushing in. I'm like, yeah, they're competent. They'll get this done, you know? Yeah. I always get that, like, good feeling when I see them rush off toward the danger. That's as Gryffindor as you could possibly get, yeah? Yes. Anyway. Aside from all of the horror, we we get into the, the kids getting into the woods, getting away from all of that. Uh, we see Stan Shunpike shooting his shot with Avila, which... I love that. You go, Stan. You shoot your shot. Yep. Youngest prime minister ever. <laughs> or <laughs> yeah. minister of magic. Min- yep. Uh, good for him. Um, <laughs> which just begs the question, how does one actually... How does Avila determine who is worthy and who is not worthy of, like, do you just have to find someone who's not like that around you? And you're like, that guy. So that, you bring up a really good point, and I wanted to bring that up. So it, when we were in the stadium and the Avila were singing and dancing, both Ron and Harry were entranced by it. And yep. even Mr. Weasley was like, you know, plug your ears, and he was plugging his Had to ears. have protections, yeah. Right. Yep. When we're in the forest... Ron is the one that starts acting up. Harry doesn't act up. And from this, well, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I thought that was interesting that Harry doesn't have a, a reaction that time. I think, yes. It, it is an interesting note to take. Uh, I think he's much more, once he's become aware of a thing, I think he's much more, his constitution is a little bit stronger and that he can be like, I'm recognizing what that is. Okay. Go away from it. Yeah. <laughs> or resist it or protections. Yeah. Mr. Weasley told me to do this. I will then do this. Yeah. Done and done. And he's also a little bit more apt at following an adult who he respects direction. Yes. As, as, as much as we get on Harry for doing some dumb stuff and doing some things that he should not do. Yes. If an adult wizard that he respects tells him, do this and this is why yeah he'll he'll usually do it i wonder too if this is also just kind of indicative of ron does seem to i know that i know that harry's had his moments where he's um 
he hasn't kept his head or his wits about him. Mm -hmm. But Ron seems to be a little bit more knee-jerk in a lot of situations. So and I wonder if that also plays into this. So let me ask you then, who do you think's reaction is more poignant? Harry's resistance or Ron's susceptibility? Which do you think is meaning more meaningful in the grand scheme of things? Do you think it's like Harry's resistance to it is more impressive or Ron's susceptibility to it is more indicative of like who he is at his core? That's a deep question that I'm throwing at you out of nowhere. That really is. Um, well, so uh, I want to... That question has a lot of nuance to it. And is it a spoiler question? Do we have to get into the spoilers, or are you good? Not, no, I'm good for right now. Okay. I have thoughts that we'll talk about in the spoiler section. Okay. But, um, it, but it, it's an interesting question that you phrase it as an either, as like I have to pick one, because I feel like they're not mutually exclusive. I feel like this is a microcosm of what Ron's personality is, is that he is a, a emotional at heart, and I, I don't think it's a bad thing, but I think that it does leave him to be a bit susceptible to some things that could be manipulative of that, but I don't think that that negates that it, I think it's really impressive that Harry did fall for it, and then hours later is just cool as a cucumber with it. Like, I, I think that his, he, he has a very, it, it underscores his strength. He's a very, he's a very emotionally strong person. Yes, I think. Uh, and I don't think, sorry, I don't think that Ron reacting that way means he's emotionally weak at all. That's not what I'm saying. But I think that it's just more indicative of Ron is, Ron doesn't have a barrier up a lot of times. And I think that's a for good or for worse situation. Mm -hmm. Um there are definitely things he's better at emotionally than Harry, but I just think it's it's so impressive to me that he's he's a barely a teenager and in a couple hour span he can resist something that his his best friend hasn't figured out. That last point I think is the most apt that he's at that age yeah. and can make that determination of like I think adults can have like that moment where you go too much over the edge emotionally and you're like oh yeah that was too much I can't do that again yeah and you have that time out moment with yourself yeah adults have that for and this is still it's not even like borderline adult he's still a child here <laughs> like uh, to have that moment of recognition be like I can't react that way again that was not good and I don't even know that he's having that it, he doesn't really have that conscious Right. moment with himself because uh, we would know it because this whole book is from his point of view yeah. but something registered in him where he's like that wasn't right I should go away from that not do that again and it's it's such a it's a relatively small moment in the chapter it kind of just gets glossed over there's no one really points that out no one really says you know oh look Ron is reacting Harry he's not or there's Harry doesn't think to himself wow you know like I can't believe Ron is reacting and I'm fine. You know, like there's, yeah. there's zero, uh, no one addresses it. It's Other than Hermione completely... being like, really guys? Well, <laughs> like... right, but even that's directed at Ron. That's right. not an acknowledgement that Harry didn't fall for it. I think, yeah. Uh, their friendship as the three of them is really interesting because I think they, they balance, they check and balance each other really, really well. Yeah. Because what one's strength is is another's weakness and, and so on in the triangle. Yeah. It's a really interesting dynamic. Yeah. Um, but I think, even though it wasn't said here, I do think Hermione recognizes a difference between the two of them in this moment, even though she doesn't say it. I don't think a lot gets past Hermione. No. She might be a little frustrated. In the moment, she might not recognize it. Oh, yeah. But down the road, she might be like, well, Harry didn't jump at Avila again. Right. Like the, right now, she's probably thinking of the two of them in the box again, being like, oh my god, we're near Avila again. This is yeah. going to be disastrous. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Plus that we... Well, I have more thoughts related to that, but I'll save them for the spoiler section. Sounds good. Um, so, they stumble uh, along the woods, find themselves alone in the woods. They hear someone rustling in the dark edge of the, the woods. They hear this weird incantation, Mors Morta, Mors Mortar? I don't know how exactly to pronounce it. 
M-O-R-S-M-O-R-D-R-E, uh, which projects this massive skull into the sky with a serpent coming out of the mouth. The iconic. The iconic, which admittedly is a really cool like image. Oh, it's such a cool. <laughs> it's a symbol. really cool image, <laughs> but um, it's obviously it's the dark mark. It's a very dark magic centered thing. It has a lot of negative connotations attached to it uh, that invoke very real. <laughs> Uh, PTSD is not even appropriate, really. It's just like that f- that fear, because it doesn't even have to be somebody that has a negative personal connection to it. Right. It just instills fear, deep-seated fear in anybody who sees it, because they recognize what that means. Yeah. What does it mean? It means <laughs> that, because uh, Arthur kind of breaks us into it a little later, it, it essentially means that Voldy himself, or a follower of Voldy, has been at a spot and death has occurred. I think he does a really good job of driving that point home when Ron is kind of being a little obtuse about it and just saying, it's just a symbol, why does it matter? And Mr. Weasley's like, imagine Mm. coming home to that. You know? like You don't even have to see it, you know what that means already. Yeah. And what are you about to walk in and see? Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was just a a very nice way of just concisely framing it as put yourself in that position for one second and see how you, you know, like that's a, it drives it home. It drives it home really, really well. Yeah. <clears throat> the whole scene that come, that follows is chaos to the highest order. Yeah. You get these faint popping sounds, which again, Harry recognizes very quick. He's on top of his game right now. Harry recognizes as people apparating, and he's like, this probably isn't going to go well, <laughs> and pulls them both down to the ground very quickly as 20 uh, stunning spells come flying right over their heads. Yep. Um, and it's all Ministry of Magic officials uh, who went out and, and, and tried to stop the, the group, who converged on this spot where the, the skull was sent into the sky, and... Arthur's like, wait, 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 stop, stop, stop. That's my son. And then you have just this interesting set of encounters between Arthur and uh, Crouch and Diggory. Yep. And I really want to get your opinion on, well, I want to get your opinion on Amos Diggory because Julie and I had a whole thing on Amos and Cedric because Julie is very uh, questionable opinions on uh, of Cedric. But... Um, but Amos is a certain type of dude, and we see a lot of that here. Yeah. Um, they have very interesting... First, it comes Crouch right out of the gate with, like, which one of you did this? I kept thinking back to the movie. Because in the movie, it always seems over the top when Crouch comes up to the three of them. Yeah. Always. He did a great job. <laughs> that actor did a great job, because that's exactly what the scene is. Yep. Is him coming straight up being like, which one of you did it? Who, who, you know, who set the mark? I want to, you know, and eyes bulging. Like that whole scene. Yep. Really well done in the movie. Surprisingly well. Um, so tip of the cap. But uh, Crouch is clearly incensed. Uh, we find out a little bit that he has a history with the, the, the Dark Mark himself and, and Death Eaters, which we get that term, Death Eaters. Yep. Uh, followers of, of Voldy. And... Uh, and Amos gets into figure, trying to figure out who, who exactly did this. And Arthur's like the voice of reason yes. in the whole thing, which, gosh darn it, Arthur is just awesome. And we've, we really are way overdue for an Arthur episode of just us gushing about Arthur. Yes. Because he deserves it. He's just the best. But we meet Winky again, um, who was passed out, stunned, what have you, in the woods, in the bush with a wand, which Amos finds. And uh, we get into a whole interaction again. Uh, keep in mind, Amos Diggory is working at the Department of Regulation for Creatures. Yes. So he feels like it's his responsibility here to take lead because it's his department and this is a magical creature. So he's like, get out my way, I got this. And Hermione can't help herself but chirping in and because she views it as abuse of a creature. Yeah. And Arthur again just tries to stop Amos from 
drawing all conclusions without any actual due process. Arthur's trying to keep people on track. Yeah, they first question Harry. Yeah. And they're like, Arthur goes, Amos, who are you talking to? Like, who are you actually talking to? This is is Harry Potter. Yeah. Why? Why in the world would he do this? Well, the the best part about that is also what directly precedes it, where Harry's like, oh, hey, that's my one that I lost. Yeah. And Amos is like, you confess. And it's like, that's... Like, think about who you're accusing here. He's dialed in. He's like... He's just, he's going at it. And then Amos flips once he figures out, like, oh, yeah, you're right. Harry Potter would not want this to happen. Uh, and then he flips and is like, well, whose house elf is this? And then it, we find out it's Crouch's house elf. Yep. And he flips on Crouch and is like, or he doesn't even flip. He just goes, well, clearly this elf learned it from someone. And they all turn to Crouch and they're like, isn't this your house elf? And Crouch is like, are you really accusing me right now? And then we find out he has... Some history. We don't find out what exactly. Yeah. But he's like, do you know what I've had to go through regarding that mark? You're going to accuse me right now. And Amos is like, no, my bad. Yeah. <laughs> like, my bad. Um, okay. So uh, it, it's a messy situation. Very messy. Um, what, what are your thoughts on kind of the Amos, Amos diggery of it all throughout these first couple of chapters? So... I have very, well, okay, throughout these these first couple chapters. Which is really just when we meet him at the port key yeah. and, and here. Um, oh, man, that's a hard question to answer because the first time I read it, I, I would have had a different answer than I do now. Explain. Um, so the first time I read it, I did not like him at all um, because I thought he was... I did not like how he handled Harry when he met Harry. He's Fair like, enough. My boy beat you, and poor Cedric's like okay. off in the corner. Yeah. Can like, we can we not have that yeah. conversation? Like, yeah, like that's not like you're you embarrassing right you now. You don't know the circumstances, yeah. and he's like nonsense. You know, you're gonna tell generations that you beat Harry Potter, and both Harry and Cedric are like, please get me out of here. Mm-hmm. Um, in this chapter, then the first time that I read it. I was like, wow, this guy's still being a blowhard. Like, he's, you know, rude to Harry or just not a, you know, he's very, he really likes to jump to conclusions. He doesn't need to know all the facts about the Quidditch game. Yep. Cedric beat Harry. Doesn't matter what the circumstances are. Mm-hmm. He beat him. That's it. Uh, this house elf appeared with a wand. That's it. It's a good parallel, actually, to draw between yeah. the two situations. Yeah, he's very keen to get to a conclusion, mm-hmm. but he kind of comes to ill-informed conclusions. Oh, you, you would confess that this was your wand. Why are you coming to that conclusion? He just, he told you that he lost his wand. Why are you dropping, jumping to like, oh, he confessed? Like that's not, yep. those aren't the same things. Because he's not using the right information to get to where he needs to be. So the the very first time I read these books, he annoyed me to no end. In rereading them... I'm very intrigued. Um, I, I don't think his behavior is any less annoying, but I get it now. Like, I kind of think it's sweet that he's like... What? <laughs> I, think, I think it's sweet that he's like... Cedric's writer died. He is a hundred percent behind his son, Interesting and he's he's propping up his son and and fully, you know, it doesn't matter what the circumstances is. You beat him, you know. Instead of this, like, doesn't matter the circumstances. You beat him. Like, there, it, it, I view it in a different, I view it in a slightly different light. And then when he's in the in the clearing, um, trying to to figure out what's going on, I kind of. I, I view it a little less obnoxious that he's immediately jumping to conclusions, and I'm also I'm kind of now relating to that a little bit more of like he's just trying to get ahead of the situation. It's a bad situation. He feels like he's in a leader role, so he's trying to drive that thing forward. Wow, two positive spins on Amos Diggory that I, I was not expecting. Yeah. Well, you delivered on the intrigue that I was expecting. Yeah. I was like, I'm intrigued at what. Yeah. 
All well, right. no, because I, I remember it very vividly the first time I read the books, not liking him, and then on all subsequent reads, I've each time I reread it, I soften a little bit more. I My take on Amos Diggory has always been, this makes Cedric look that much better. <laughs> I agree with you in that him bo- boosting Cedric all the time and talking about Cedric all the time doesn't make him a bad father. Right. Uh, that's that's not the case. It makes him an annoying father. Oh, uh, yeah. And you kind of want him to be like, hey, can you just shut up for a second? Let Cedric prove himself or let Cedric handle the situation? Take it down a notch. Take it down a notch. Uh, you don't have to be that vocal. Let Cedric do it. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to say it. <laughs> but it doesn't make him a bad father. It just makes him a little annoying to everybody around right. him. Right. But, uh, so I'll give you that. Um, that was the nuance that I... I think it's different between how I used to read it and how I read it now. Because before I was just focused on the, oh my god, why won't he shut up? He's so cringy. And now I'm like, yeah, but like, he's it's coming from a place of love. It's still annoying, but at least it's coming from a place of love. I think it's interesting in the clearing that you have two, well, you have Crouch, who's a top ministry official, mm-hmm. who is, in, for all intents and purposes, in charge of everything yeah. at here. Uh, despite Fudge being like uh, near no show <laughs> throughout these events, and you know Ludo Bagman in and out, and uh, Crouch has been the constant kind of leading everything. Yeah. And Amos is the head of this department that happens to regulate creatures, and we have a creature here that's you know uh, wanted. <laughs> you know he's yeah. uh, Winky is a potential suspect in this. Fine. And yet Arthur who is the head of the muggle department of the Ministry of Magic seems to be the one with the clearest head and determined to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's why that doesn't make sense. <laughs> like, yeah. neither of them had that like ability and here comes Arthur. I, I know it's written from a certain perspective. I know JK's trying to do this and set up Arthur as like a great character, which she does. Because he's great. Because he's great. Um, but it's just kind of interesting that Arthur has to be the adult in the room of adults. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and he is throughout this entire chapter and just, you know, explaining things. And he's the one that leads Charlie, Bill, and Percy into charging after the, the Death Eaters and all that. So he's the one where we get all of this background information from. Uh Arthur's like the white knight of, of this whole deal. He's he's the he's a stereotypical father figure mm-hmm. in like all of the good ways. Every like best sense of right. Yeah. Like he's he's always calm. He's level headed. He can he can put things together you know quickly and reach the right conclusions. He's not over overly boastful. Like I like how theory. he shuts down complete theories with like yeah. a sentence. Yeah. Real quick, we did get a couple of new spells. I already mentioned the Morse Mordor one. Uh, we had Enervate. Oh, yeah. Which revives stunned individuals, which I find super fascinating. <laughs> and then uh, Prior Incantado, which lets you know the last spell that a wand performed, like a ghost of the spell, which love, is also cool. I love the imagery where they describe doing it and then the death mark comes out but it comes out as like this uh, grayish colored smoke Mm -hmm. miniature thing yeah it's cute it's a it's a really cool spell and obviously quite useful in a bunch of different ways yeah which arthur also points out is like it's actually quite clever if they used a different wand because their wand would betray them yeah again arthur just putting two cents i i like this chapter because it's one of those chapters that i always go back to and I remember when I read, reread this, probably the, the first time I did after the original reading, which was years later. Mm-hmm. And I remember like, oh man, there's so much around the Quidditch World Cup that people so easily forget about. Yeah. And this is one of those chapters where a lot happens in just character moments. You get character beats yeah. and character growth. But I digress. <laughs> do, you, do you have anything else on the non-spoilers? Um... I have a couple things. There is one thing for Mr. Weasley that I forgot to mention way back at the beginning of the chapter. More Arthur talk. Let's have it. I, yeah. Let's talk about Arthur all night. Um, it's the it's the very opening to the chapter that the twins win big, mm-hmm. and Mr. Weasley's like, look, don't 
tell your mom about it and they're like look we're not planning oh. on doing it because we need it for something big and then there's this excerpt of Mr. Weasley was going to ask but seemed to decide that he didn't want to know another great dad moment total dad moment solid like, total dad, dad like a don't tell your mom and b don't tell me because i don't want to get involved like <laughs> i love it i love it so much as much as he is exhausted by the twins because he ends yeah. up having to clean up more often than not whatever disaster comes from their experiments or what have you yeah he i think he recognizes that that a the twins have a good heart so yes. even if they screw something up it's not malicious in any way. He trusts them. He does have an inherent trust. Yeah. And and you know, part of that is, I think, their relationship, Arthur and the twins specifically, have such a cool father-son's relationship because they are interested in his, like, muggle magic tricks and how does that work, and they have that kind of... They're the only ones of the family that really seem interested yeah. And what he does, I'm sure Bill and Charlie are mature enough to understand their dad's great. Yeah. But the twins seem to take a particular interest in what he does. Yes. And they just have a different relationship, it seems like. It's like when they enchanted the car to go pick up Harry. Yes, exactly. And the first question out of his mouth is, how did it run? Yeah, exactly. You know, like, they, they do They just have a special that. connection that it seems. Yeah. yeah. Um, I always liked that moment of, like, you, you you understand why they're his sons mm-hmm. in that moment of they has the same curiosity the same yeah drive they're very much they Arthur's yeah. sons it's yeah yeah I love it um, two other things that I have from this chapter uh, I thought that the chaos surrounding Winky was very well done and only gets better on subsequent rereads mm. um, I enjoyed her answers to a lot of questions because housewife, house elves have to walk a fine line as we've seen with Dobby mm-hmm. uh, in terms of what they can or can't say versus the truth of the situation which that note exactly yes. brings up tons of questions because I'm like you have a house elf yeah. and you have the person that house elf belongs to right there yep you can ask specific questions if you wanted to. They tiptoed around it pretty hardcore. They did a wonderful job tiptoeing around it. So I, it just leads you to be like, well, couldn't you just ask Crouch and be like, what were you doing out here? What yeah. Does Crouch not want you to know what exactly was going on? Ooh. You, know, you don't... Right. They tiptoe around everything really, really well in this chapter, is all I'm saying. They do. No, they really do. And then uh, Hermione says something at the very end of the chapter that I thought was very insightful. If we're talking about this chapter is a big character chapter and uh, getting insight into the characters and like Harry's emotional state and things like that. Hermione's got a great line where... Um, they're talking about the death mark and what it means Mm -hmm. and Mr. Weasley's explaining it and she goes were they doing it to show support or to scare them away because Mr. Weasley is talking about Mm. um, how would the Death Eaters I think Ron says something to the effect of like oh well it was one of the Death Eaters that put it up and he said who would be or why did the Death Eaters disperse when they saw it and it was well think about it because these are the people that sold out Voldemort to avoid time in Azkaban, if they thought that he was returning. They wouldn't want to be anywhere They wouldn't want to be around because they know that he's coming from him. And then Hermione says, were they doing it to show support or to scare them away? Both very insightful comments from two characters. Yes. You're right. And I'm glad you brought that up because it it creates an interesting dilemma. Because from the first chapter, you obviously see... Voldy starting to make his return and Peter Pettigrew is helping him out in that. Yeah. And if these people, like Arthur says, avoided prison in Azkaban for presumably being like, well, we don't have anything to do with him. We yeah. don't want to do anything with him. We were tricked. We were coerced. We right. were, in, in, you know, whatever. Um, I can't imagine Voldy's going to, like, be cool with that. He doesn't seem like the chill type. No, no. So I don't think that's going to fly with him. No. So yeah, I could if the 
if those group of people that were floating the Roberts family in the air yeah. did not set that off themselves, yep. if they saw that, I could only imagine like, oh, shoot. Because yeah. they know, as Arthur pointed out, there are only a handful of people. There's only precious few people that know how to do that spell. Right. And they had very close ties with the man himself. Therefore, if you were in a group who's acting like a Death Eater, but you see what symbol would only come from a Death Eater or the man himself, yeah, it'd be like, wait, where did that come from? That wasn't you. That wasn't... Oh, shoot. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, no. We gotta, we gotta go. We gotta, we gotta get out of here before yeah. something else happens. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's a really interesting breakdown. I thought, yeah, a very, a very insightful question from from a young, bright witch. Yeah, she's okay, I guess. On that note, let's head to uh, Killing the Spare, and we'll be back in the spoiler section. Kill the Spare! All right, so we were back with the spoiler section. Uh, we were just talking <laughs> between the two sections, and we actually have a lot more to talk about than we thought we did, so that's <laughs> great. In uh, the last chance, we saw Winky a lot uh, holding the seat for, for Barty Crouch and having to fight her fear of heights because she was forced to go up there. And now we see Winky here put in the spotlight of all of this stuff. And I think some, especially Amos Diggory, kind of almost forsaking her to a guilty uh, verdict without actual due process. Yeah. And Hermione was like, why are you just berating her this entire time? Why are you calling her elf? Why, like, she has a name. like?" What is all of this? Yeah. And the question I have is, how did house elves get here in the first place? That is a good question. Like, are they just evolutionarily designed <laughs> for this purpose? Or at some point did a wizard bound them to this servitude? I have to imagine at that they were bound to servitude at some point. Like this wasn't, my point is essentially to make this as simple as possible. Is it natural or is it not natural? I feel like it's, see that's okay. That's a hard question. Cause I feel like that's the argument between Ron and Hermione in the books where Ron yes. keeps saying, this is what they like. This is how they are. We should make them happy by doing it. And Hermione is saying that's not the bigger picture. Yes. And I guess I always thought of it as way back when they were tricked or coerced into this role and after years of it just became part of like, how they identified themselves. Because there's a deep magic here. Like, it's not like a surface level, just right. charm you into serving me. This is like deep-rooted, their essence is to serve their master. So and if they get away from it, they feel awful. But then, okay, but, yes. But when do they get a master? What do they do if their master dies and there is no one else? Fair questions. <laughs> I don't like, have the answers to those. How sad would it be if, I hope it's not like a from birth because like who wants a little, little baby, baby house elf servant like that would be that would break what, my little what are these existences how do they then mate how do they like right how does any of this happen <laughs> right like we don't have answers to are they bred somewhere specifically that's not great but this is so this is a spoiler section yeah the hogwarts kitchens are run by house elves yes <laughs> like yes and they're not free. No, but they're not. They're not, treated well, but they're right. not free. They're not not free. They could be right. free if they wanted to be free. Yeah. They have the option of, like, I guess that that's the, not the core argument, but that is a, a, a large part of differentiating between, like, the Hogwarts kitchen elves can kind of do whatever they want. So they can serve Dumbledore, but Dumbledore's just kind of like, eh, whatever so like they're not really bound by like they think that they're bound by they do it because they want to do it, it as they're they're yeah like they're viewing it as they're bound to 
Hogwarts or right. Dumbledore or whatever. But like, you know, he offered Dobby like two galleons a week or something, and Dobby fought him down to one. Like, he, they're not trying to n- not be equitable towards the house elves. I guess is the point. Whereas, like, you've got families like Malfoy or Black, and they are just they abuse it as yeah. just straight up slavery. Yeah. So, which uh, Hermione raises that point as like this is just slavery. Like yeah. this is what this is. Yeah. And Molly and I have talked at length about it. Almost every time she's on, <laughs> uh, we talk about some form of it because you look at some of these early books, and they treat a lot of sentient creatures. Yeah. Very poorly. Yes. That's like now I get house elves are different because they're like magically bound to this but like gnomes they can speak they can interact with you yeah and they're joked about being punted (laughs) like what is this wizards are not good at treating other creatures that they deem lesser than themselves as like they're just not empathetic it's like this happens again in book five with Umbridge and the centaurs and yes. the statue at the Ministry of Magic is Audrey things looking up at the wizard in like this awe of just you know oh my god you're the greatest and it's it's a very well established thing throughout the books too that like the um, goblins are very not happy with the wizards and have their own history and have their own separate community entirely because they don't like how the wizards are. It becomes this thing in I think it's five. When Hagrid is going to the Giants with Madame Maxine. Yes. And that's a whole thing because historically wizards haven't treated the giants giants well well. so that's why they're sending Hagrid and Maxine because they're half giants and they can broker things a little bit better. Like there's a well established history of wizards just being jerks to anyone that's not another It's a power trip. It's how they can remain in power the most because as we learn in this chapter, Amos tells us she was found with a wand. So at worst, she still gets a penalty for that because you can't have a non-witch or wizard carrying a wand. That's so arbitrary because they can do magic without wands. Yes. Well, a wand supposedly focuses that magic. Right. So if we know that house elf magic is quite powerful, and I'm assuming goblins have a good bit of magic in them and so forth. If you can focus that into something, I would imagine that would scare wizards to a epic level. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But why couldn't they like I just I don't understand the reluctance to not work with these other sets power. of magical it's, it's, people. I, I imagine it's just power. So like they know how powerful house elves can be. Yeah. Because they utilize it for themselves all the time. If you gave something that powerful its freedom to do with that magic whatever it wants to do, and then you gave it a tool to focus said power, they feel like they might have their status threatened. That's why I feel like this is just a very elaborate brainwashing scenario, and that maybe the magic that's bounding them to these things is magic that they're setting up themselves under some misguided thing that this is what they're meant to do or what their purpose is because they're they're so intelligent they can do a ton of magic yep um and you see in in dobby's case that he's able to to you know think past things or think for the greater good or, or to want things for himself so it's not like it's those thoughts maybe don't happen ever in the house elf community i think that they've just over, I, I think that they were the only ones that wizards were able to fully subjugate, and I think that they've brainwashed them over time, and that that's because to me it doesn't make it just doesn't make sense that they're born with that innate desire because you don't you never hear of house elves for any other for centaurs or giants or right. goblins or whatever you only hear about it for wizards, and that to me just feels feels like a construct of the society that the wizards have created. I agree. I just, I I think of Dobby, especially when he's causing all of this mayhem, and I'm just like, well, how did even house elves get here? I don't know. No, I know. It's a wild thing, and it's just, it's a depressing thing. It's a very depressing thing. And when you look into the realty of it, you see, like, this is an example of how Harry Potter is actually much darker than you think of on the surface level. Like, when you ask these questions, it's not a happy sunshine and rainbows answer. This is not, it doesn't look good. No. 
anywho. Um, so yeah. on, a, on a somewhat related thing of that, one of the things I didn't want to point out in the non-spoiler section, I hinted around it a lot okay. of how uh, JK really dances around the situation in the forest with Winky and Crouch and mm-hmm. the way that they phrase things. Yeah. And the one line that stuck out to me that I absolutely love in this is um, Diggory asks Winky, did you see anyone in the th- in the woods? And she goes, I is seeing no one, is her reply. She's being honest. She did not. That's oh, one was, of those, yeah. it just, it kills me because on the reread, I'm always like, oh my goodness, that is so well crafted because when you read it the first time, you're like, oh yeah, she didn't see anybody. And then you reread it again and you're like, she didn't see anybody. But he was there. He was there. Diggory should have been more specific. Uh, yes, you have to know exactly which question you're asking. Yes. And, uh, but he should know he's talking to a house. That's his specialty, right? I know. <laughs> like... That's what, and I also would assume this is a point against him. I would have thought that as the head of the Department of, for Regulation of Magical Creatures, creatures yeah. um, he would be a little bit more empathetic. He just keeps calling her elf. That's so rude. Well, it, it it goes to, like, if you listen to my deep dive on, on Lupin and how Fenwyr Greyback knew to attack Lupin, Remus, Yeah. it's because his father, who was a specialty in dark magical creatures, Boggart specifically, came in and started berating werewolves. And that's what Fenwyr was in the Ministry for, was... A potential werewolf and he was just laying out all these stereotypes and slander against werewolves and Fenrir's just sitting there going like if I get out of here it's gonna be a problem yeah. he got out of there it was a problem and it's like maybe yeah if you think yeah that this might be a problem you should watch your words and be careful about how you word things but this is spoilers so Harry Potter like the overall theme is love Mm -hmm. and specifically mother's love yeah great there's other themes here and one of those themes is don't overlook the small downtrodden overlooked what have you yeah they're important too yeah and if you start overlooking people or things or creatures you're not seeing the whole picture and house elves are an extraordinary example of that because no one thinks of them ever. That's how they escape the, the Malfoy manor. That's how the battle at Hogwarts turns is because a whole army of house elves come out of Hogwarts. It's like no one ever thinks of them. Yeah. And when that comes up to bite you, everybody's surprised. They're like, oh, what happened there? And those that know... Yeah. Are like, you might not think this is important, but I'll have them in my back pocket just yeah. to be like, you know. There's a lot of overwhelming themes, and 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 that's definitely one of them. There's a quote from I think it's ironically serious that I love, and I, I don't have the quote in front of me at the moment, and yeah. I'm going to butcher what I think is a great quote. Yeah. But it's ironic that it's serious because he doesn't treat creature very well. Yeah. Like, you don't measure a man by how he treats his equals, but by how he treats those lesser than him? By his inferior... Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You really good on that. Thank you for that. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. An ironic quote again coming from him. So sad that it came from him. Yeah. So sad. But it's it's one of Sirius's greatest moments and also one of his... Huh? <laughs> moments? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, whatever. Uh, anyway. I'm sorry. I got off on a sidetrack. Oh, no. You're fine. Um, So... Two other things. One of them I'm trying to remember. So we were talking about Harry and his emotional state and his ability to ward off Vila thoughts. Mm -hmm. Yep. And one of the things that you said at the very end was um, Hermione probably clocked it on a subconscious level, Mm -hmm. but maybe didn't clock it on a conscious level because she's still thinking back to them both doing it in the booth. And then hours before. Yeah. Right. And then Ron does it, but Harry doesn't. So she's probably like, oh, whatever. But uh, probably came a little bit more to her level of consciousness when uh, we, we get Fleur as part of Hogwarts. 
And Ron keeps making an idiot out of himself in front of her. No let up, yeah. No let up whatsoever. Like, he avoids her in the hallway, partly because he's embarrassed, but also partly because I think she makes him do weird things. Uh, he asked her out in front of a bunch of people, and that was, she didn't even say no. Yeah. Uh, it, like, she does really embarrassing things when Fleur's around, and I think that maybe Hermione might have noticed that a bit. The core of, of that relationship uh, throughout the books is actually kind of nice because it's built on a friendship. Like, I think her critique is men who throw themselves after someone without knowing anything about them like Ron, it, it goes back to arthur's quote yeah exactly and ron goes really hard at fleur based on very vain he's never had a proper conversation with her because he can't concentrate for more than two seconds when he's around her yeah. it's it's absolutely well, not based on anything we know harry heard arthur's advice yes we're not aware that ron heard arthur's advice that's fair but then what's also wild about that is Harry has no reaction to Fleur. Yeah. He's he's chill from from whatever. He, he very briefly comments on her silvery hair in the very beginning when she's there, and that's it. He does still fall apart every time he sees Cho, though. Like, he loses right. his nerve a little bit every time he comes across her. But that's not quite the Like, he's genuinely it's not the same. It's not vain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. to Cho yeah. for who she is. Yeah. Not because of this. Just looks, like, purely. Yeah. yeah, and whatever the Vilas are doing to control, to they're kind of like sirens. And yes, 100%. It's, he's not falling for that. He's. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with being nervous around someone that you actually like, do know and have feelings for, but that's not what... It, so it's just funny that like he isn't influenced by... Also, I mean, Ron is a teenage boy. Yeah. Who succumbs to some teenage boy distractions. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's yeah. what it is. No, right. So Harry seems a little bit more... like He's still distracted by some of that. Again, the Cho stuff. Yeah. But he's a little bit... More, he's got other interests and other things that can sway. Like Quidditch is so big for him. And, you know. yeah. and we do find out that that's something that Ron is insecure about later on in the books. That Harry's not super insecure about like yeah. being with someone or yeah anything. having that kind of fluff your self-worth a little bit yeah someone else sees worth in you yeah. therefore you must be worthy right but he's not seeing it himself he's seeing it ron has a lot of those else. insecurities from yeah. his family and from other things right. harry doesn't really have that no. so and we see that through ron's uh what he sees in the mirror of arise where he sees himself on top and the prefect and Mm-hmm. Head boy and Quidditch and just all of the more honors vain and all of the awards. things. Yeah, and then yeah. in book six where he's propping himself up through lavender. You know, so he's got a, a history of he's, he does. he's kind of insecure. The other thing I wanted to mention with Harry successfully repelling the Vila attraction is that this is also a bit of a foreshadowing of what's going to come later on in his Defense of the Dark Arts classes, where he's going to be the only one to successfully mm. repel. Curious person. Um, so again, this kind of plays to his mental fortitude. So I have a question for you then. Yes. So we have talked a little bit about that imperious moment. I believe we've talked about it on the podcast before. Okay. And I want to get this thought on you. Is his reluctance to succumb to some of those mental, emotional, for lack of a better word, attacks? Yeah. Because Harry is so resolute in who he is? Or because at this point, he's still actually got part of Voldy in him. And there's part of Voldy in him as a horcrux that gives him maybe a little bit of a bump up? A little bit of a boost? So I would say... It's it's certainly... And the reason I put that forward is because it has impacted things in his life already. That being the sorting hat, seeing Slytherin in it. Yeah, and his ability to speak. Parcel time, yes. So it's not like it's not there and it's just, you know. Right. Um, I don't know that he's able to actively tap into it, though. Doesn't have to be active. I read a really good theory that the reason that he's so good at repelling these things 
are because they make him feel normal. And since he's in a constant state of stress all the time, then when he feels normal, he's in his, so immediate, his immediate reaction is like, no, wait, this isn't right. That is so messed up. And I know we've talked about characters needing therapy. Right. So I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting point, And I can certainly see where you're coming from with it. I want to give Harry credit, though. He is, we do know that he's a very powerful wizard. I'm going to take the lame answer. Yeah. Even though I just posed that to you. Yeah. The lame but probably correct answer is, it's probably a little bit of both. It's Harry himself is a talented, yes. capable individual with yes. a strong constitution because of what he's had to deal with and persevere through. Yeah. Also, he is under the influence of something that's a part of him. And it is in his body. Whether he a piece of Voldemort's soul is in his body, that's non-negotiable. It's a thing. So it's it's probably a little bit of both. It's an interesting... It's definitely an interesting question. It's an interesting perspective to take on it. I only ask interesting questions here on Hogwarts the Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let us know what you guys think. Uh, we've gotten into some... Let us know what you think about house elves. Let us know what you think about Harry and his ability to resist Vila's after the first time. Um, yeah, let us know what you guys think. Anything else on any of that? Um, that's, I'm done with my thoughts on uh, Vila's for now. So yep. I was doing the math on our last episode because Uh-oh. you know me. And uh, so if the Quidditch match that we saw, the 422nd Quidditch World Cup was in 1994. Yes. And the 427th Quidditch World Cup was in 2014. Correct. I believe that that means that there should have been one in 98, 02, 06, 2010, and then 2014. That is correct. Okay. So the one that, do you think that one actually happened in 1998? If the Battle of Hogwarts was in 1998, yeah. How could they... See, I because is that like a big enough thing to... No, 100%. <laughs> so, because it's... The Battle of Hogwarts is a culmination of at least a full year of Voldy being fully back, out. Back, yeah. Back, back. Murders happening yeah. everywhere. Disappearances happening everywhere. Yeah. Um, like, maybe not the best place to have a huge public gathering... Yes, <laughs> very, very much so. Uh, plus, practically speaking, in World Cups, you need a build-up to the World Cups. Teams need to qualify for the World Cups. Oh, yeah, that's a, actually a pretty good point. <laughs> and, and such and so forth. So, uh, for example, in 2014, they have the first first-round match taking place on April 13th. Oh, that's a heck of a lead-up. Yes. So that's April 13th. I believe the final takes place in July. Yeah. So April 13th is the first round, first match. Well, that's prior to the Battle of Hogwarts taking place. So I'm assuming if it happened in 1998 and they didn't, like, knock it off a year, which they could very easily have done. But if it happened in 1998, they could have just pushed it into the summer or into the fall or what have you. Okay. I mean, look at this current World Cup in real life. Usually it's a summer event, but because of where they're hosting it, in the summer it's like 120 degrees, so they pushed it to November. (laughs) So we're going to be starting it soon. Things happen. Yeah. Uh, World War, that that, that tends to push things off. So, yeah. All right, that's fair. So I would assume it happened, but... So there's probably an asterisk by it somewhere. It's a trivia question in, like, wizard (laughs) pub trivia. 100%. Just like a bunch of what I'm going to go over right now. We're going long, so I'm going to kind of run through this at a, a fairly quick place so bear with me but uh first round matches um there were some interesting kind of results uh norway played ivory coast norway won 340 to 100 fascinating uh nigeria went against fiji nigeria won 400 to 160 400 mm-hmm. huh? domination uh brazil went against haiti and they're in fury brazil beat haiti 100 to 90 but Haiti had to be disqualified because of an illegal capture of the snitch. It went up someone's sleeve. Oh. Which, that can't happen. Huh. So, there's that. Interesting. The, so it's fine to catch it in your mouth, but not in your sleeve? At least it's a body 
part, I Touché. guess. Also, you took it out of your mouth, I would assume. <laughs> right? Can he take I, it out of his sleeve? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Um, U.S. beat Jamaica 240 to 230. Yeah. Uh, Liechtenstein beat Chad 470 to 330. Oh, boy. That's on a... the third day of competition. That's rough. Liechtenstein beat Chad. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Yeah. Got your attention. <laughs> Bulgaria versus New Zealand. Okay. We get a reappearance of the team Bulgaria, but this is 2014, right? Yeah. Uh, Bulgaria won this matchup 410 to 170. Okay. However, a notable player, one of the headline stories for this 2014 World Cup, is Crum Victor Crum's emergence from retirement. Oh. At 38 years old, he came back and he played in the World Cup at 38. Uh, fathers on the 1994 side that introduced 18-year-old Victor Crum. Yep. Well done. Yep. So they won their first match. Japan beat Poland 350 to 140. Wales beat Germany 330 to 100. Uh, quarterfinal matches. Brazil beat Wales 460 to 300. Oh, Bulgaria and Norway. Norway was a favorite to win the whole thing. Oh. Bulgaria beat them 170 to 20. The end came almost without warning. Victor Crumb's sudden descent looked like some bludger avoidance and Norwegian seeker Sigrid Christofferson not only neglected to mark him, but was actually looking the other way when Krub raised his hand to show that he had secured a Bulgarian victory in the 42nd minute. Wow. 42nd nice. minute. That's a quick one. That is a quick one. Krum, who had been written off by many journalists as too old and too slow to compete at 38, was born from the pitch uh, in triumph by fans. Uh, U.S. beat Liechtenstein 450 to 290. They also stole the Liechtenstein mascot afterwards, an augury, a rain-predicting vulture bird. Ooh. Mm -hmm. Okay, now that would be a neat pet. An American international in incident. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Japan beat Nigeria 270 to 100. Oh. Jen, this is for you. Ooh. This is specifically for you. Oh, I know what this is going to be. We got some statistics. We got some Quidditch statistics. All right. Uh, Brazil. Yeah. Uh, one of the semifinal teams. Mm -hmm. So you got, the, you got Brazil, U.S., Japan, and Bulgaria made the semifinals. Okay. Brazil. Brooms. Varapidos. Ooh. Yep. Total number of goals, first two rounds, 41. Average time for snitch capture in the first two rounds, 131 minutes. Ooh, okay. Outstanding player for first two rounds, Alejandra Alonso. Hmm. Yep. Ludo Bagman has him at 9-1 to one favorites to win the cup. <laughs> yep. If you're wondering about the Americans, their brooms are the Star Sweeper, 21. Uh, total number of goals for the first two rounds, 39. Average time for snitch capture first two rounds, 100 minutes. Oh, okay. Outstanding player first two rounds, Darius Smackhammer, which yeah. is just awesome. That's a good name. <laughs> they are 12 to 1 to win the title. <laughs> um, yeah, so they give breakdowns, uh, Japan and Bulgaria. Japan's average time of snitch capture, 61 minutes. Ooh, that's quick. Uh, yeah, very quick. Uh, Bulgaria, 88 minutes. Okay. Um, Semifinal matches, U.S. And Brazil, Brazil beat the U.S. 420 to 310 in a very close matchup. Ooh, okay. Bulgaria beat Japan, which was another favorite to win, 610 to 460. Jeez. High, high scoring. Sc high scoring. Now, there was an interruption in reporting. Oh, no. An interruption in reporting because the Why? gossip column took over. Okay. And Double Doors Army reunites at Quidditch World Cup Final. Daily Prophet's gossip co uh, correspondent Rita Skeeter reports. Oh, boy. Uh-huh. Just note, they're not the only celebrities to appear. By the way, Dumbledore's Army are now celebrities. I love it. But uh, among ministers of magic and presidents, Celestina Warbeck was there. Oh, okay. And the American wizarding band, the Bent-Winged Snitches. <laughs> oh, that's cute. The Bent-Winged Snitches, American rock band. Love it. Anywho, uh... Potter was there, took his young sons, Jamie and Albus, to visit the player's compound where he introduced them to Bulgarian seeker victim Crum. Aww. And despite their potential rivalry amongst Quidditch and amongst the obvious Triwizard Tournament, they embraced Aww. upon meeting again. I love that they stayed friends. Uh, upon, about to turn 34, Harry Potter's uh, black hair with streaks of silver in it. Uh, Potter is sporting a nasty cut over his right cheekbone, but comments uh, from the Ministry of Magic stay stale with we do not comment on the top secret work of the Aura Department. As we have told you no less than 514 times, Miss Skeeter. <laughs> Perfect. 
Yep. Neville Longbottom, now a popular herbology teacher at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, was also present nice. with his wife, Hannah. Hannah Abbott. Yes. Hannah is not only retained, uh, retrained as a healer, but is applying for the job of matron at Hogwarts. Oh, nice. Taking over from Madame Pomfrey. I, I don't know if she'd been retired at that point or not. Yeah, good point. Yep. Luna Lovegood, married to Rolf Scamander, who we mentioned earlier. Yes. Uh, or in our last chapter, grandson of celebrated magizoologist Newt. George, wealthy owner of Weasley's Wizard Wheezes. Charlie, dragon wrangler, still unmarried. Why? Says uh, Rita. Uh, Percy, <laughs> head of the Department of Magical Transportation, which we now know he's a part of. Now he's the head of it in 2014. Very nice. Uh, yeah. And also, we get some notes, some gossip column from Rita about Victory being smitten with a young Teddy Lupin. I very vaguely remember reading that before. Mm -hmm. Wait, so Hermione and Ron weren't there? They were there, so, so she focused a lot on their hair. Um, <laughs> but, you know, whatever. Uh, but yeah, they're like, yeah, 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 they're there. They're always there. They're always with Harry. Um, but yeah. Uh, so the final matches come down to Japan versus U.S. for the third place. Japan beat U.S. 330 to 120. Okay. And the final, Quidditch uh, World Cup 2014, Brazil versus Bulgaria. And this extremely exciting and emotional match ended when veteran Bulgarian seeker Victor Crumb caught the snitch, like he did in uh, 1994, ensuring that Bulgaria won this Yay! time. 160 to 70. Ooh, very nice. So in his final Quidditch match, Good. Victor Crumb seals the win for the Bulgarian side. He deserved it. So there you have it. A quick rundown of the 2014 Quidditch World Cup, which featured some interesting kind of tidbits. Jokingly aside, there's some cool tidbits in there about our characters in another setting post epilogue yeah. so um no that's nice i i like that a lot more than the epilogue to be honest because that actually feels like they got together and they're hanging out and they're yeah. like chilling and stuff and it's not like just some happenstance like on the way to the train as i've mentioned many a time i am a massive massive geography nerd and my career is in sports so when you give me that yes. japan is writing yari rushi brooms they scored 32 goals for the first two rounds, uh, and Ludo Bagman gives them a 4-1 to one chance to win. Um, that's awesome. <laughs> also, he lost a lot of money, because Bulgaria was like something like 12-1 to one odds. Yes. And uh, he, No, I'm sorry, 50-1. to one. They were 50-1 50 50? odds. He must have lost a lot of money that He's day. not very, you know, he really needs to quit. <laughs> well, he's ahead. He is not. Is he ahead? ahead? Do we know that I he's mean, ahead? he's probably not, but... <laughs> You would think getting chased by some goblins would humble the man a bit. Unbelievable. But, yeah. Nope, still out there betting. So. On the whole, though, he still cracks me up, so can't be mad at him. <laughs> He's a character. He's an interesting, interesting character that still wears his team Quidditch robes. That don't fit anymore. That don't fit anymore. Uh, I noticed that he didn't wear his England robes because he was embarrassed that they got blown out in qualifying. Ooh, okay. Um, now, yeah. okay, so I have a quick question, and I don't know if it's been discussed or not, and I uh -huh. know that we don't have that much time to go sure. in, but you brought something up, and I want to I wanna ask your opinion yeah. on it. I've read, I come across fan theories sure. online and whatnot. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I internet sometimes, and... Um, one of the things that I've read, and I, I kind of agree with it, and I want your opinion on this, is should Harry have been an or? Who? I've read some fairly compelling arguments that uh, he would be a really good defense against the dark arts teacher. Well, I, we know that he would be a right. good well, defense that, against the dark arts teacher. And that it teacher. suits his personality. I can see it both ways, right? Because or he's a lot more in line of like danger, and he definitely has... I know to his chagrin when Hermione tells him he has a hero complex, but he kind of has it. Oh, he definitely does. Or a savior does. complex, but he, he definitely, he definitely does. does. Um, but, like, I can also see the, the defense against the dark arts side of, like, ensure, like, he had such terrible experiences with it, like, ensuring that he's able to actually instill knowledge into kids and, and teach them from experience and, like... I'm going to throw a curveball at you. Yeah, go for I'm it. I'm going to throw a curveball at you. You're going to say neither. No, I'm going to say both. <laughs> <laughs> Haha! <laughs> Curveball, swung and missed. Okay, so how would that work? So yeah, so look, right now he's an or, and he's in the Department of Magical Law Enforcement. Okay, he can't do that forever. Okay. Like oh, okay. Like he can't do that forever. At some point, he's got to step away nice. from the physical you going out and catching dark wizards. All right, that's a good point. And when he hits that point, there's no like, let's be real, Albus and Minerva were not 
young people <laughs> teaching at Hogwarts. They were not. They were not. So they were. They weren't like. Um, they weren't like Snape, who was fairly young teaching there. Yeah. They weren't like him. So he could always finish out his career. All we know in canon is that he's an Auror working for the magical. I think he's. The, I think technically canon is he's the head of the magical law enforcement. Really. In canon, yes, because I think okay. in Cursed Child, oh. Hermione is the minister of magic, or the, uh, yeah. Yeah. And he is, like, literally the number two, and he's the head of the law enforcement. Oh, okay. They've risen to those levels. That's cool In 2014, thing. I think they mentioned that Hermione is still the head of the magical law enforcement department here. Okay. On her rise up. Okay. But in Cursed Child, she becomes minister of magic, he becomes the head of law enforcement, and they're, like, one, two with the ministry. Okay. Um, that's fine, and I'm sure it provides a nice pension for his kids, and right. that's wonderful. But he could always retire from that at some point. Yeah. And then come to Hogwarts and teach at, you know. So, I say both. I like Because I want... <laughs> I'm terrified. I want my cake and to eat it. I'm, so. I'm terrified with how much I've agreed with you tonight. We have agreed a lot. Yeah. In these last two chapters, we've agreed a lot, and I'm sure that will change <laughs> swiftly. Savor it while you can. <laughs> No, but I, I actually like that. I like that that's a... Because he, he fits well with both. He's He would be good at both. And mm-hmm. then it gives him an opportunity to be both. Yep. I like that. That wraps it up very neatly. Well Almost done. like this episode. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, despite there not being a whole lot more Quidditch from here on out, yes. we will have you back on to discuss other chapters. So <laughs> Thank you. Uh I'm sure there will be ample opportunities for you to disagree with me. I will try my best. <laughs> so with that, uh, we will wrap it up here. Um, chapter 9, The Dark Mark. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, we've, again, been growing quite nicely. Uh, thank you to all of our listeners in the UK and Germany and Belgium and Sweden who have been listening regularly. New Zealand's been another one that we've been hearing a lot. Thank you very, very much. Thank you to the new countries that have tuned in. Oman and Hong Kong. We've been heard in Hong Kong, which is really, really cool. So thank you to some of the new countries as well for uh, tuning in. We really appreciate it. Hope you stick with us. And uh, yeah, we'll see you on the next chapter. Thank you for listening to Hogwarts, a podcast. If you like what you've heard, please click the subscribe button on your preferred podcasting app and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Hogwarts, a podcast.